Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic. Rather than making recommendations because everyone's circumstances are different, we talk to subject matter experts about how they would recommend thinking about that decision. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia, which is where we are recording today. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please also consider leaving a review of this podcast as well. Uh, Our topic today is seeking angel capital. And for those of you who don't know me, most of you don't because you're out somewhere on the internet, um, I've been a cheerleader and advocate in the angel capital world for really as long as I can remember. My first job out of school actually was... Um, was helping entrepreneurs in the former Soviet Union and you know, in Russian at that time, there wasn't even a term for angel capital. It's kind of mm-hmm. fascinating because the whole business vocabulary was evolving at that time. And, uh, you know, when I moved to Atlanta about 15 years or so ago, I, I got a, a taste of the, the early stage capital scene here. And the one theme that, that was recurring was, you know, you can't get a deal done here. There's no angel capital, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you live in Atlanta, it's tedious. If you don't, this is news to you. Um, and the thing I always sort of thought was, well, you know, I saw people making investments in Minsk. And I, I can't imagine that investing in Atlanta is harder than investing in Minsk. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I can't imagine there's that, there's that big a difference. There's got to be something kind of going on here. And as, as, as you kind of got more into the, the community, and I was very fortunate the community embraced me very quickly. I started to learn about the the gears and cogs about this. And as I started to learn more about angel capital and early stage investing in general and with the travels I've had abroad, I came to a conclusion that um, for all the things that we as Americans think make us unique, I'm not sure anything makes us more unique than the angel and venture capital sectors. Um, I'm not sure anything makes us more unique than the way that we support startups. And if, if you look at, at the word entrepreneurship in other languages, if you directly translate them, they almost have a sense of, 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 of doing something semi-devious. You know, if you're, if you're enterprising, that's not necessarily a good thing. But in the United States, we have a unique cultural facet where the entrepreneur is folk hero. And I can't think of any other place in the, in the world where we elevate the entrepreneur to that status. And one of the things that makes the entrepreneurial sector go is angel capital. You know, you, you can't bootstrap a new car company. You can't bootstrap a new, uh, a new airplane company, right? And uh, many of the, of the largest companies, many of the, the most important inventions in the world that we think of today at some point were funded by angel capital. Um, Columbus's expedition to the New World was funded by angel capital called King, the the the, the royal the royal family of Spain. Um, Thomas Isabella. Edison, Queen Fern, who's it? Queen Isabella, right? Yeah. I was gonna say King Ferdinand. I knew that was not right, so I choked. It's Queen <laughs> it's Queen Isabella. Thank you. 
Um, you know, Thomas Edison was funded for the light bulb and for General Electric by a guy named J.P. Morgan. And so angel capital pervades almost everything that we think about in terms of the American economic story. And I think if you don't understand angel capital, you don't understand a big part about how American business works. And so here to talk about that is uh, somebody that I've known and, and I, for a long time, I've come to respect. He doesn't even know this, but he's a spiritual mentor to me. If you don't, if you haven't listened to his or read his uh, emails, get on his email list. Does them, I think, three times a week. They're just phenomenal. Not good, great. Required reading. And his name is Charlie Paparelli. Charlie is a 25-year professional angel investor focused on helping entrepreneurs in achieving their dream of starting and growing their own company. Five years ago, he began sharing his experience in a twice-weekly blog. Okay, so it's twice-weekly, so sue me. Mm -hmm. To entrepreneurs and angel investors at paparelli.com. In addition to his writing, he is a speaker and a coach helping founders and their new teams build enormously valuable companies. He invested in over 35 entrepreneurs over the last 25 years. We're going to come back to that. He is the angel in residence at Georgia Tech's Atlanta Technology Development Center. He is also a mentor at the Atlanta, at the Atlanta Tech Village. He is chairman of the Atlanta High Tech Prayer Breakfast, which is, which is the largest pre-6 a.m. start event on the Atlanta calendar. Now, that may be a small list, but um, it, it is a big deal. That breakfast is in its 28th year. It is the largest networking event in Atlanta technology, and it is, in, in, it is an evangelical uh, uh, outreach. Um, and, and as an aside, I'll never remember. The, the, I've been to about three or four of those. and One of them was uh, an executive from Apple. Charlie remember, will remind me his name. But as an executive from Apple who had to come on and talk, I think a day or two after Steve Jobs passed away, as I recall. And that was some powerful stuff. That was as raw, that was as raw as it gets. Um, Charlie has held many community leadership roles during his 40-year career in Atlanta technology, including Angel Lounge, which is uh, an offshoot of Startup Lounge that serves to educate current and aspiring angel investors in the Atlanta community. Charlie is married to Kathy for 42 years. They have four children and three grandchildren with another on the way. They are members of Church of the Apostles in Atlanta and Charlie is an avid motorcyclist whose current ride is a 2019 BMW R12, R125, nope, that's wrong, R1250 RT. Got it. That's a lot of letters and numbers. That's what it is, yeah. Charlie, thank you so much for coming on the program. I've been looking forward to this since we started talking about it several weeks ago. Same here, Mike. I always loved the work that you were doing. You know, we started Angel Lounge as an offshoot, as you said, a startup lounge. You know, I wanted to be a part of what you were doing. You're saying we're missing this piece. And that's where we came up with the idea of Angel Lounge. And, and I think due to that, I think there's more, more capital available in Atlanta than there has been because I think you're, you're making people feel safer and more confident about making those commitments. Yeah, Angel Lounge, we focused Angel Lounge. Instead of trying to march more companies in front of people, it took us a while to get to the, the right formula. But the formula that we're using is we're really – our mission is to just help uh, – angel investors or those who are interested in becoming angel investors to help make them better investors by sharing each other's stories and experience with them. So I like to start this podcast with a base of vocabulary question because I, I think not everybody knows what angel investing is. Um, they may think it's venture capital, but angel investing and venture capital are related, but they're not quite the same, are they? No, they're very different. Uh, 
if you think about when we uh, venture capital basically is uh, mutual funds for high risk investments. All right. So if you know how mutual funds work, I mean, they, you have a mutual fund manager and he has partners and they raise money to then invest that money for other people in uh, mostly public stocks, uh, public uh, stocks, things that you can get in and out of pretty quickly. Um, so they might put in one to five percent of their own money into that big mutual fund. So venture capitalists, the difference between them is they're, 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 uh, they're investing in companies that are privately held companies. And as privately held companies, you can't get in and out of them quickly. Once you're in, you're in forever. Right. Okay. That door uh, makes a loud slamming it noise. It does. Yeah. It's all, so we're all excited to get in. And then next thing we're doing is looking for exits and we're driving along the highway and there are none. You're just on there and you hope you don't run out of gas <laughs> until you get to that last exit. But, uh, so venture capitalists, hopefully people put money in venture capitalists and, uh, big, big, uh, pension funds put money there simply because it's, it's a high risk, high reward alternative. So you'll find some of these big pension funds will put in maybe up to three to five percent of their total fund into high risk alternatives of which venture is one of those. Angel investing, on the other hand, that's like your own money. <laughs> so. It's uh, like running your – it's like taking whatever money that you thought you wanted to put into higher-risk ventures, whether it be 100000 or 250 or some cases it could be multiple millions of dollars and you say, no, I want to be an angel investor. I want to be on the ground. I want to invest in these early-stage startups. I want to work with these entrepreneurs and I'm willing to risk my personal fortune on this one segment. So you have a lot less uh, people that – a lot less company, a lot fewer companies that you'll be spreading that risk ac across. And so that makes the risk even higher as an angel investor versus venture capital. Now, I want to clarify one thing just because you happen to be the guest. It, it only happens to be called an angel investor because that's a term of art. It has nothing to do with a religious affiliation, <laughs> even though you happen to be very open about your faith. Um, right. there, there are plenty, there are plenty of people who aren't that way that are angel investors, right? There's a, there's not yeah. a, a Christian element to it necessarily. There's no Christian element to it. In fact, the term angel investor goes back to, uh, people in New York on Broadway who actually wanted to get their shows funded, their new ideas for Broadway shows. And, uh, people would come in and they would, very wealthy people would like the idea and they would fund the show. And those people were called by the producers of those shows angel investors. And that's where the term – that's the genesis of the term angel investor. I had no idea. I did not know that. So in the producers, the people who funded Springtime for Hitler were actually angel investors. <laughs> Only you would bring up that example. But yes, that's well, true. Yeah. My wife is Jewish. She's a big Mel Brooks fan. And I will say as an aside, by the way, the, the funniest six minutes in cinema is Springtime for Hitler. <laughs> Um, only Mel Brooks can make the Nazis funny. Um, so we often hear about friends and family as investors. Do they qualify as angels too or are they sort of a different animal? No, I would call uh, friends and family. There's, there's, a, there's a term that are called the three Fs, okay? Family, friends, and fools, okay? Are those very, very early stage investors. And when you're – when an entrepreneur is raising money, the first thing that he's, he's raising money around or on as a foundation is his credibility. Well, the first people that 
find the person, the entrepreneur, to be credible, especially if it's his first time being an entrepreneur, is his family. If his family doesn't think that he or she could do it, then why should anybody else think they should, they'd be able to do it? So I think that the first round is always friends and family. But, uh, because they're the people that say, my God, if Mike Blake is, is starting this company and Mike is so smart and I think he's going to be able to build something great, I have no idea what his idea is. I don't know what the market is. I don't know anything, but I know Mike and I'll put money behind Mike. So I think they are angels. They're the, uh, they've been called fools, but I think what they're doing, I know what they're doing. They're betting on the individual because they have a very deep and long personal relationship with them. So you bring something up that I, I want to make sure that we cover because there's, there's a timeline of maturity here, right? And that friends and family round, if you will, that investment and, and is really banking on the credibility, which means there isn't a business yet, right? There's there's a, a hope, an idea, right? A story, I guess. Yeah. Just In most cases. Somebody, most of the time, somebody will come to you and say, yeah, you know, this is something that I've been doing. I've been working for such and such a company for a while. These are the kind of people that I've gotten in, in, in uh, I'm, I'm attracted to. I've been working in this industry for a while, working for this company for a while. I'm 35 years old. You know, I've been through, uh, you know, I've either I developed an expertise as a programmer or I direct, developed an expertise as a salesperson or whatever, but I know uh, this industry and I have this idea and I brought it to my bosses and no one's interested in it and I just can't let loose of it and I really want to start a company around it but I have no idea how to do that but I think a lot of people will buy whatever I'm going to build or sell and uh, that's kind of how it gets started and then the, the first place they have to go is they have to go to somebody so that's all they have. They have this story, you know, yeah, this interest right. and yeah. that they, it's this passion. It's sort of like a God given idea they can't let loose of, but they need to be able to feed the 35. They need to be able to feed, you know, their family. Um, and they need to start putting money away for college and all this for the kids and everything that we all do. They have houses, cars, they got it all. How do they survive? Well, that's where the angel comes in and says, we can help you meet your personal expenses at the beginning while you develop, while you unhook from the corporation and your salary, which is step one, and then you start building out this idea. You brought something up. I'm going to deviate from the script here because I think that's, I think it's important. That 35-year-old, you know, the, the most, the iconic entrepreneur is somebody who's in their 20s. You know, to us, they're basically kids, right? But they actually don't start most companies, do they? No, when you say iconic, what do you mean the iconic? I'm iconic, iconic, like the Mark Zuckerberg's, the Bill, the Bill Gates, oh, the world, the Steve Jobs. Yeah. That in some cases they actually drop out of school so they can start whatever it is they're going to start. But actually, more most entrepreneurs look like that 35 year old, don't they? Yeah, I think the the statistics prove out that it's somewhere between 35 and 38. And my statistics actually prove out this companies that were successful for me that I invested in. That's exactly how old people were. So they have enough. They really, like when I got out of college, I grew up, um, my father was a middle, he was a trainman on the Jersey Central Railroad for 38 years. When I sat around the dinner table, we didn't talk about business. In fact, I remember I was the first one in my family, first male in my family to actually get a degree from college. And I was getting an accounting degree. 
And they told us we need to read the Wall Street Journal. I was reading the Wall Street Journal and I didn't even know what I was reading. It didn't make any sense to me because I had no context or understanding of basic business. So uh, it's really – when you come out of school, what do you know about business? What do you know about building a company? What do you know about the disciplines of building a product, the disciplines of launching a product, how to – you know, how to gain, uh, how to, how to hire people, how to do re- business reviews or reviews for people. Okay. How to properly give a presentation. You don't know any of this stuff. You have to learn it. And so that's why I think those 15 to 18 years out of college, that's the, that's the, ba- the foundation where you have to prove out your functional expertise as well as your management expertise. I think the only thing I knew about business is what I remembered from watching that Michael J. Fox movie, The Secret of My Success. That was pretty much it. <laughs> I don't remember that. Yeah, no, nor does anybody else. <laughs> okay, that's, good. That's, yeah, so, um, so let, let's let's sort of then now get into the seat of that that person that thinks they've got that idea, right? And they're convinced that idea's got legs, and and the company they're working for is not gonna not gonna buy it. They sit down. They 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 take you out to lunch, or they sit down for your own office hours at at the ATDC. What do you tell them in terms of if they're going to embark on a venture, I'm sorry, an angel capital raising process? What should that entrepreneur be prepared to do? In order to, to raise capital, I've got an idea. I need somebody to write me a, a, a bigger check than I can write myself. What is that process going to look like? All right. So I'm going to speak beyond the friends and family. Yep. So friends and family is going to provide that bridge to get you from a weekly payroll <laughs> or a weekly salary, if you will, to being an entrepreneur or being starting your own business in effect. Okay. So now your future and your family's future is dependent upon you making money. So, so tell me again, what, what are you looking for in this? I'm just looking for the pro the, the process of ra- of raising angel capital, right? I've decided I'm going to raise, an- raise angel capital. What do those steps look like to get from want to raise angel capital to having a check in the bank? All right. I would, uh, a, a part of this myth, I mean, you talked about entrepreneurs as folk heroes. And there's this, uh, this, there's a myth around the folk hero that as soon as I come up with an idea, the next step is to actually raise capital. Okay. The really the next step is to start building a business. Capital is attracted to businesses. Trap capital isn't just attracted to purely ideas. All right. I look back at Facebook, for example. So when Zuckerberg, you know, the, 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 what happened with Zuckerberg, you know, he started Facebook basically as a freshman at Harvard. I believe it was Harvard. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, sort of a nerdy guy wanted to meet people, introvert, you know, he, he didn't want to meet people. He wanted to meet girls. So right. what he did is he put together this he put together this little site to uh uh to have people meet each other over this internet and it was only open to the freshman class at Harvard and uh he started to gain traction because there's a lot of nerds I guess that go to Harvard you know I <laughs> think that's fair yeah and they don't I only drove by Harvard <laughs> when I lived up in Boston but I think that that's the rap. Yeah, all right. Well, they needed to meet each other, so they didn't know how to do it. So they started doing it over the web. This new, this new, uh, this new medium, if you will. And then from there, it, it started to kind of 
take off, you know? So he met people. He became sort of a little bit of a rock star in his freshman class and other people in the college and at Harvard said, well, what about us as sophomores and juniors and seniors and all that? And of course, we always know that seniors always like to pick up freshman girls, right? You know, that's kind of how that works. And so he opened it up and it just became for Harvard. And then from Harvard, other people started to contact him and said, hey, you know, we're at, you know, MIT. We want to do the same thing. Can you open it up? Oh, so he started to open up these silos where they couldn't talk to each other. You could only talk within your educational institution. And uh, from there, it sort of just expanded. At some point, you know, people said, uh, he said, I need, I need to, this thing's so popular now. I need to kind of get some money here so I could live on and continue to build it out. And that's when he got his first venture capital. And by then he had exposed, he had expanded to high schools again, siloed. And when he first got some capital in there, it was probably angel money to start with is, uh, they said to him, look, why are you doing this siloed approach? Why don't you just kind of open it up horizontally to anybody who wants to be part of this? And that was the beginning of Facebook. And uh, that's so he started to build out the attractiveness of the idea and the business model, and that's what it was. And he had no idea what the business model was going to be when he started, but later it came about that it was going to be advertising-based because he had captured all of our data, and he was able to sell it to all of the advertisers. Yep. <laughs> it worked out really well for him. But the first step really is for these is to think, I have to build a business. Don't think I have to raise capital. I have to build a business. If you build something that looks like it's going to be a business, that there's an actually – there's some buyers out there for whatever service or product that you're selling, then an angel investor like myself can come in and say, it looks like this can turn into a big business or this can turn into a $500,000 business max or maybe it's going to be a $5 million business. Then we can size what type of investment it would re require and then it, we could uh, we could figure out what kind of returns that we might possibly get based on the investment we put in. Yeah, and, and you know, you and I think both know and have met entrepreneurs that I think have gotten that backwards, where their business seems to be raising capital. And yeah. that doesn't work very well, does it? Yeah, one of the things I worry about in our community and and, and in other communities is we don't celebrate. <laughs> we don't seem to celebrate the progress that a company makes in their marketplace. But what the news covers is how much money they raised on the last round. Money doesn't build companies. People build companies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, uh, we, we should be celebrating. Oh my gosh, they did a deal with AT&T. That should be the news. Not that they raised $50 million, you know, in the last round at a, you know, $200 million valuation. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, um, but you're right. So the end, the the end point, the the what we celebrate is is some milestone in the process as opposed to the business uh, successes themselves. So um, to raise money for a small business, angel capital is not necessarily the only game in town. It's not necessarily the best route to go. Right? Um, you could, for example, you might be able to obtain a small business loan. Right. Or you may be able to finance things through credit cards. Can you talk about a little bit about what differentiates one opportunity that makes it appropriate for angel capital and what maybe makes another opportunity more appropriate for a, a small business loan kind of scenario? Yeah. Small business loans and credit cards, they all kind of fall in the same bucket. You know, they're probably 25% interest type, type loans. Yep. So 
you got to think of them. They're more like working capital loans. So I need some, I, I, I'm, I'm invoicing my, I'm, I'm doing a service company. So I'm invoicing my customers. I've got a 45 to 60 day sort of window for the, before that money comes back in. So maybe I can use credit cards and I can use, um, these business loans, if you will, to kind of finance that. But for long time financing, 25% interest is going to be quite a burden as you go forward. So, uh, I, I see those as working capital loans. The angel, um, the, the, the other side is banking. You know, can I go to a bank and get a loan? And well, if you've got enough assets, enough collateral and enough money in the bank, they're willing to give you a loan. But most of these people, you know, don't have the credit, credit worthiness to get any meaningful size loan that's going to kind of move the needle for the business. So it forces you into selling stock in your company as opposed to just uh, accumulating debt to kind of go forward. So, so with stock, you don't have debt. You have, you've sold off a piece, but now you have a partner. And that's what an angel investor is. They're a financial partner in the company. So you've saw, sold off 30% or 50% or whatever the number might be, depending upon how early stage you are, uh, of your company to this investor who's now going to be hanging out with you for a very long time. And, and you know, that, that, that timing issue, I think, is, is so important that, you know, a, an angel investor, if they're experienced, and not all of them are, um, you know, has is it understands that that door is going to slam shut, and you're on a highway for a while, right? Mm-hmm. The bank maybe they understand the door is slammed shut, but if you're going to be on that highway for a long time, there's that that meter runs really quickly, right? As that right. interest kind of piles up, and it it takes cash out of the business. But if you can pay that back fairly quickly, right? Maybe that does make sense if you have enough cash flow initially to kind of, as you said, as you sell through your inventory or whatnot. Yeah. Maybe it makes sense to do that. Yeah, it depends upon. There's a, I guess there's a couple of things is the uh, to consider is what kind of business am I building? If I have to spend a lot of time in order to build out a product, you know, a bank loan is probably not going to be a good way to go. But if I'm doing a services company or if I'm a reseller of some type of other product, so I'm really looking to just buy product and then resell product. Bank loans make a heck of a lot of, uh, make a heck of a lot of sense because you can keep moving them. You can pay them back. You can take them down. You can do it that way. But if uh, if I have this long term investment that I have to make in order to get set up to build my company, well, that's bank loans. They like you said, accumulate you know, crude interest kind of grows very very rapidly, and then you're kind of underwater. The um, the other thing to consider is that. Do you know enough about what you're doing to build a company? So this is where angels come in too. They're just not people who come with money, but they come with expertise and network. So if you could find those kind of what I'll call smart money angels, then they could bring a lot of value to the business to increase your chances of success and mitigate your risk. I want to drill down on that because and I know in your model, I think your smart money is involved. I think you are involved at a greater degree and mm-hmm. because you do fewer deals, right? I think, I think in the interest, I think it said you did 30 deals over 25 years, something right. of that nature, right. right? So you are not, you are yourself, you're not spreading thin. You are going deep into one or two deals at any given point in time. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's on the, 
sort of on the deeper end of the spectrum. Not, not all angels are as involved on a day-to-day basis as an intimate partner as are you. Is that fair? Right? It's very fair. Um, and then there's a spectrum. And then on the other side, um, and I'll just share with the, I'll, I'll just share with the listeners some insider baseball. We often call those do- doctor and dentist deals, mm-hmm. right? Nothing against doctors or dentists, but there's a stereotype that they have money, but not the experience of being angel investors. And they'll often, they'll make an investment, but not be involved, right? But the other side of the reason that doctors and dentists get involved too is they are, there's a jealousy that the business guys are making all the money. Okay. So they want to become a business guy and that becomes an easy sort of on ramp angel investing, but it's a quick way to kind of lose some of their hard earned sort of cash flow too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> it's a great way to lose money, right? So, yeah. but as, as somebody who's seeking angel capital, right? On, on the one hand, what, what you're offering, you're offering experience, you're offering expertise, you're offering support. The other edge of that sword is I got to share the steering wheel, right? I've, there's account there's built in day to day in your face accountability with which not everybody in the world is necessarily comfortable, mm-hmm. right? And some in some capital seekers will say, you know what? You're telling me this dumb money is just going to write me a hundred thousand dollar check and then not bother me? Great. Where do I sign? What is that? What is that funding seeker not getting right? What are they overlooking, or what are yeah? What are they failing to see because they see that quote free money? Yeah, the uh, I have people. I had a I had a call just the other day. In fact, somebody who was saying to me, you know, what uh, they were. Uh, this is their third time actually starting a company, and they actually the first two companies they had exits, so they figure they have the formula down. They're just going to be successful. So this is a guy that has total exits that were that were equal to thirty-seven million dollars in exits. So this is a pretty successful guy in the healthcare in the health the healthcare vertical, and he's saying to me, you know, you know, and understand how you understand how to price these deals out. You know, I'm I don't have revenue yet in this one. I do have a lot of experience. I've got good track record. I think that people should pay a much higher amount of money as angel investors for the stock that I'm going to sell in this company at this stage. And uh, and I said, well, you got a choice. If you want people who are going to come in, who are going to add to the credibility of your new company, your idea, and also lock arms with you for any future sort of uh, be of value add for any future funding that you're going to do, I said, you're going to have to – you're selling to professional angel investors who are going to be asking for – Look at they're looking for good returns and they understand how hard it is to build companies. So you're going to be pricing your company lower than you would with inexperience, the doctor's dentist. You go to the doctor's dentist and they say, Oh, well, I'm pricing this brand new company, never raised money before, has no revenue, hasn't built the product yet. We're going to price it at $10 million. Okay. And as from the outside, you might say, wow, that's a really good deal, $10 right. million, because I look at the stock market and all those companies have billion-dollar valuations. So this is a great deal, whereas an angel investor would probably – I said, what did you uh, raise money on your last deal for that first round? He said, well, they got an outsized return because I priced it at $2 million pre-money. And I said, well, that's what it was worth. And they didn't get a ridiculously high time. I said, what was the returns they got? He said, oh, they got a 10-time return on their money. I said, so what? 
So what? Why does that bother you? You were a success. You made millions of dollars because of, of these people they put this money in. They said, well, you know, I think that I could, I could make even more. I said, well, how much more money do you want to make? And they said, well, it's not about the money. It's about fairness. And I said, oh, so it's about greed, but it's not about the money. You know, I mean, it was like a ridiculous conversation. So, so I would say this is why what, I don't argue with you, so, by the way. What, so what do you like? Yeah. <laughs> so what you're missing out on if you get what we'll call is inexperienced money, as opposed to using the uh, pejorative term, is that the uh, is you're missing out on the ex- the experience. I mean, I've been an entrepreneur in my earliest days. We built companies from scratch. We did exits. I worked for corporations. I know what it is to uh, to build leaders. I know how to hire people. I know to help. I have a network of people I can bring to the company. I can make introductions to executives. That's very valuable. Well, if you got a doctor in there, he's not going to do any of that. He's going to call you up and say, "So what happened last week?" <laughs> right. You know, I mean, if somebody faints at the board meeting, that's great, but otherwise, it's not going to bring <laughs> exactly. that much to the table, right? Exactly. So, so that's what you miss out. And you, you said something that I want to, I want to touch on because I think this is, I think this is really important. That that ten x return, I don't think that's really an outsized return when you consider the risk that's being taken, right? So, I, I just posted two days ago on my chart of the day when you look at venture returns, which is more mature than angel. Right, sixty-five percent of those deals don't make their money back. Right, right. it's a, it's up to a one point x return, which means that's cash and cash. Best scenario, you get your money back, which means that two thirds of deals lose money. Right, right, two thirds of deals in the S and P five hundred do not lose money if you're just sort of in a broad index. Right, right? so it's kind of like drilling for oil. The 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 the, the deals that are successful also kind of got to pay for the deals that weren't. Right, the, the the well that strikes oil also has to pay for the, the the drills you put in that didn't strike oil. Right, and so if you're successful, perhaps you're thinking, boy, you know, 10x return seems rather greedy. But from the investor standpoint, you gotta have that, or you gotta have that aspirationally. You gotta hit it once in a while, or the economics, given the risk and the failure rate, just don't work out. Right. Yeah. So what you wind up with, I think that the average angel. Uh, that has been doing it for some, for let's say a 10 year period. I think their returns are somewhere. Somebody, this is somebody that presented at Angel Lounge. I think those returns were somewhere around, uh, three to six percent as an internal rate of return. Oh my gosh. Well, that's an awful lot of risk and an awful lot of work. Okay. To get those kind of returns. And what happens is when you're speaking with entrepreneurs, every entrepreneurs know his company is going to be a great success and it's going to be worth a lot of money. What he doesn't have is any kind of context to say, as an angel investor, I'm looking at 20 people that look like you, okay? And I'm seeing, I really understand where the risk is because I've talked to people at all different levels. You seem to be the most attractive, but there's no guarantee that you're going to be successful. That guy I talked about in healthcare, I said, to him, you've got millions of dollars. He says, I said, why don't you put your money into this thing if it's such a good deal? And he said, well, I've already put 200,000 in. And I said, well, 200,000 to you is nothing based on the exits that you had. So you've got to be worth more than $15 million. He goes, well, I'm not going to tell you what I'm worth, but you're not far off. And then I said, well, if this is such a great deal, if it's so low risk that you're going to be a success, why would you want to share it with anybody? 
And he said, well, you know, there's there's always a chance that it's going to fail. I said, well, you didn't say that in the first 20 minutes of our conversation, (laughs) you know. But you see, this is the reality of it. So I want to take no risk, and I want all the risk to be put on the investors. And I don't think they should get more than a three-time return if it works. You say like, and I said to him, "Would you invest in that deal?" <laughs> and he didn't answer me. But you see, it's crazy the way it gets. It gets these deals get positioned. Well, you know, I th- and I, th- I think in fairness, it's sort of an asymmetry of kind of how you look at it. From the from the the entrepreneurs' deal, they have one deal, and that's it, right? But I, I want to build on something that you said. Even the deals you invest in, let's, I know you don't do this, but let's say, let's say you're an angel that's got money in six deals, right? Yeah. When you put money in those six deals, you didn't think any of them were going to fail individually. You wouldn't have put your money in, right? right? You think that all of them are going to be successful when you put your money in, but you know that four of them are not, five of them are not. Maybe all six of them are going to lose. You just don't know which ones. Yeah, it's funny that you say that the four of the four of the six will not be okay. There's such a deep sense of denial, even me, who has been through this, that I still think I'll be six for six, okay? (laughs) That's why we do these deals. You know, I mean, you can't be an angel investor and not be idealistic, outsized idealistic, and outsized hopeful. Otherwise, you wouldn't do these things. Right. So nobody would would ever enlist for the army if they thought they were the one that's going to get shot. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta have that going yeah. in. It just doesn't make any sense, right? right. So, um, how much lead time? I mean, how long do you? Th- how long does it normally take? Let's say there's a successful angel funding process that takes place. As an entrepreneur is thinking about their business plan, how how long does it? How long does that process usually take? Well, it's it's a hard question to answer, uh, but if I'd say in general terms, yeah. I would give I would say ninety days. Okay, okay, but it's highly dependent. If we're speaking to entrepreneurs and business people here, it's highly dependent upon the quality of your business. If you are sitting here and you don't really have anything, and the idea doesn't really even solve a clear business problem. You can spend the next two years trying to find the first person that's going to put money behind that. And in that two years, you're going to, you're going to change, 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 improve, do better until you hit on some business that makes sense based on your expertise. And then the 90 days will kick in. Right. <laughs> All right. So it could be forever to never. Okay. Or if you really do, in fact, have something, it could be as quick as 30 days. Okay, that happens if you get the first person who has high credibility as an angel in the deal, then it's a pile on. Everybody's yeah. got to be in the deal, right. right? Because the credibility went up. It's if if Charlie thinks that Mike is uh got a really good shot at this and Charlie's done a lot of these deals, I'm putting money in that deal. Well, what's the deal? I don't even know what it is, but Charlie's in the deal, I'm going to do the deal. You know, that's the old thing that we had about the shirt, the T-shirt for Sig Mosley, right? right? Who was sort of the godfather of angel yep. investing in Atlanta. It said, Sig said no, yeah, right? If Sig said no, you were dead. That was like right? a horse head in your bed, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what it was. <laughs> but if he said yes, everybody wanted in on the deal. They didn't even know what they were investing. Right. That's the passive. It could have it could have been alpaca as a service, <laughs> and a Sig was in. You are in. That like was saddle it. me up, right? <laughs> that was it. So, um, 
What do you think about angel groups? There are angel groups out there. We have one, the Atlanta Technology Angels, which as my editorializing, some years they're great, some years you don't quite know where they are. Um, I don't think you've ever been a very active member as an investor of angel groups, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, obviously. But do you have an opinion of, of angel groups as a place for somebody to go to look for capital? Yeah, I think that angel groups have been uh, – angel groups have been through a process here over the last, I would say, 20 years. And it's taken them that long to get to a model that actually works. And what, they, what they're serving is not entrepreneurs. What they're serving is passive investors. And passive investors, I always say that wealthy the, – the, the, Passive investors are independently wealthy people. And my definition, personal definition of independently wealthy is I can do whatever I want whenever I want, which means I have complete control over my time. Well, I might say as a wealthy individual, I want to be an angel investor. Well, if all of a sudden I create a relationship with the entrepreneur and I put money in and he sees value in me, well – I might start getting calls like on Saturday morning, which is when I play golf, that this guy lost a big deal and he just has to meet me for breakfast. Well, what happens is we have all these these people that want to do it, but they don't want to put time in. So they need somebody to kind of represent them. So what happened is over the years, these models went from sort of loosey-goosey, let's have a meeting and see who wants to invest, to actually putting uh, putting it, paying dues and paying a group of people to actually uh, vet the deals, present the deals, do the due diligence on the deals, put the term sheets together, negotiate the term sheets, and then present them to these passive investors. That's where these groups have gone now. So if you look at AIM, A-I-M. Yep, familiar with them. Right, down in uh, Birmingham. And then you look also at uh, Matt Dunbar, Venture South, up in uh, Greenville. Uh huh. They have adopted that model. It took them a while to get there, but yep. they've adopted the model, and it works because it satisfies the needs and interests of the, the passive angel investors. So they have these huge networks of people. And they are funding deals. I know AIM, AIM would probably be one of the most active angel investors in Georgia, I think. They are one of them. In fact, they started they they started a uh, a group here in Atlanta. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, they have their own group. And uh, – and, ATA, the Atlanta Technology Angels, like you said, they've had their ups and downs, and so they haven't quite had the leadership to kind of build something out longer term. So they have ebbed and flowed. But they've been in a few good deals, you know, even yep. even with this sort of loosey-goosey, uh, unstructured model that they have. So I want to ask you a question that I get asked a lot, and that is, from your perspective, how much do business plans and financial models matter? Are they overrated? Are they underrated? Well, I'm a very early stage investor. <laughs> right. Right. So for me, they're, they're not rated. All right. So what, what I look for is my business plan when we kind of get started is to say, let's do a three month forecast. Let's start with how much money you're going to spend over that three months. Okay. And is there any opportunity for any kind of revenue in that time? So we're really we're very granular, okay? But to sit here and say, well, here's my five-year plan, I say the first thing we need to do is we need to be able to get to cash flow positive. Then we can have a plan going forward. But if we can't get to cash flow positive, 
that deficit is going to be made up by investors and investors are going to be part of this drag on you as you try to kind of go forward. So, um, I don't know. And, and that's why you like, I mean, in your model, you, you like to kind of be the only guy because I think it's less of a distraction, right? Well, I'll, what I've done is always done, uh, it's been me and maybe a, uh, two or three other guys. Okay. But they're people that I trust. People don't even know they exist. But I bring them along in some cases, uh, like one guy, I, I inv- invested in a sales tax business that was selling to telecom. And uh, it was a sales tax prep business. I called it the ADP of sales tax. Well, I didn't know telecom buyers. Well, I brought a fellow that's a, a very good friend of mine who was a telecom executive, worked for AT&T, fast track guy. I brought him in. He walked me into two deals. Just walked in. One call, boom, we went in. They bought the stuff. And I well, that. That's really high value. Yeah. <laughs> so he knew telecom and he knew the buyers. So I could, I understand how to build companies from scratch and I understand building leadership teams. He was on the other hand, he was the industry expertise that kind of brought us and he had network like that. Sometimes I'll bring in somebody who's a sales expert and if the cha- in the particular channel and that would be another guy to kind of bring along. That would be very helpful in the deal. So everybody I bring along has got to be additive to the deal. Okay. To mitigate the risk and increase chances of success. Um, all right. So we're running out of time, but I have two questions I want to ask before we get you out of here yeah. uh, and get you back to doing your, your angel investing. Yeah. Um, three founder traits that turn you on. Three founder traits that turn me on. One is uh, that this is the time for this company to start in this person's life. So I look at, I look at an idea as an arc and I look at it as a person's life as an arc. Okay. So I look at this intersection between where you are in your life as an entrepreneur and this idea and where it is in the marketplace. And if there looks like there's an intersection, I call that it's almost like a God moment. It's a miracle has happened. Okay. It's not artificial. It was like it had to happen. And I think if we look back at companies like, Apple and Amazon and Facebook, those are all those kind of moments. And I'm not saying I've ever invested in billion-dollar kind of companies, but that's what I look for in an entrepreneur because it's very personal. So it's not just, oh, I was walking down the street and I came up with this idea. It had to be has, – has to fit in their life. Secondly is they have to have, for me, they have to have the industry expertise. So they are 35. So they do have expertise in uh, in a particular functional area, and they also have uh, a lot of experience in that marketplace. So they have customers they can call on. They have employees who would like to come along with them because they respect them. So that mitigates risk. And then lastly, I look for character. And the character I look for, for me, it's been easy to just look for somebody who has a who has a has a Christian foundation. And the reason for that is. At least I know what they are supposed to stand for. <laughs> all right. I know why you're that saying it like that. There is okay. some level. Oh, we're all hypocrites. We're all yeah. sinners. Okay. But there has to be some level of integrity that we can count on. And there's a reason for your telling. I say there's two types of entrepreneurs. There's those entrepreneurs who believe that there is a God and it's them. And there's other entrepreneurs who realize there is a God and it's not them. <laughs> I invest in the people who know there's a God and it's not them. So this higher level moral authority effect speaks into their life. When everything's going well, everybody's honest. 
and everybody's hardworking and right. everybody believes in helping the other guy. When things get tough, that's when the values show up. So I try to get that, that last piece of character is very important to me. That's a great uh, note to kind of wrap things up on. Um, can people contact you if they have more questions about this, this angel investing thing? Well, they could write me. That would, that would work. How would they write you? They could send uh, an email to charlie at paparelli.com. Okay. But Very, sign up for the, but sign up for the uh, blog at paparelli.com. That yeah, would be great. Do sign up for it. I kid you not. When it comes out, I read it. Uh, I don't, I can't remember the last time it was late. It may have been late once or twice, but when, when it is, I miss it. <laughs> so right. keep doing it. I'm very glad that you do it. Well, it's very inspirational. So that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Charlie Paparelli so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us today. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsor is Bradyware and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. Mm-hmm.